welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. Your host, Mono, here to bring you a slice of gaming life from Tokyo. On this episode, I'm featuring the Tamagotchi, the world's best-known virtual pet. It's an important part in Japanese video game history. And joining me to chat about it is Nanaki of the Tamagotchi Wiki. We explore the history of the portable pet and dive into the Tamagotchi Uni, the most advanced virtual pet ever. In the games, I give my final thoughts on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and wrestle with whether or not it's the best game ever made. But first, let's look at Tamagotchi with Nanaki from the Tamagotchi Wiki. Tokyo Game Life, only on the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. A video game, a toy, a pet, a subculture— all can describe Tamagotchi, the subject of this episode's feature. It's an iconic part of Japanese pop culture, and now we have perhaps the most advanced virtual pet ever with the Tamagotchi Uni. Joining me to chat about the number one virtual pet is a special guest. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hello, uh, my name is Nanaki. I'm the uh, founder and admin of the Tamagotchi Wiki. Thanks for joining me. For those not in the know, what is Tamagotchi? Tamagotchi is a series of virtual pets produced by Bandai. The first one came out in 1996, and they've been a staple of the company ever since. Yeah, Tamagotchi has a pretty interesting history. It was released in late 1996, so not too far from Pokemon. Needless to say, it was a cultural phenomenon worldwide. Why do you think it became such an immediate hit, not only in Japan, but also in the West? I think it's because of like the immediate gratification of holding something in your hand that always depends on you and always needs you. Mm. You take care of it and it immediately responds to you and you see how it grows and changes based on your level of care. So there's a bit of you inside it as well. I think a lot of people who grew up in the 90s maybe write Tamagotchi off as a fad, but it's clearly not since it's still around today. What are some misconceptions people have regarding Tamagotchi? There are a lot. There's big misconceptions that they'll need to call you at night when you're sleeping or <laughs> or they need 24-hour around-the-clock care with no hmm. way of pausing them. Bandai's introduced lots of different quality of life features and and once you get the hang of it, they're very they're very easy to take care of. How big of an aspect is collecting amongst the Tamagotchi fandom? I initially assumed like a pet you would maybe have one and take care of it, but there definitely seem to be a lot of Tamagotchi collectors out there. Right. Well, there's all different kinds of models that have been produced over the years, different varieties of shell designs, all different branding all across the world. There's some versions that are released in one country that aren't released in another. Hmm. So there's a big market of people trying to find these rare or exclusive shells that you can't find anywhere else. Do you have a personal favorite Tamagotchi or one that really stands out the most? I've got two favorites. As far as quality goes, I think my favorite so far is the Tamagotchi Plus Color, which hmm. came out in Japan. It was the first color screen Tamagotchi, and I think that encapsulated a lot of the really great features of the Tamagotchi that they had going on at the time. But I think my personal favorite is the Tamagotchi Generation 2, which is the second version of the original Tamagotchi, because that was my first when I was a kid in 1997. So walk us through, what are some of the typical features of a Tamagotchi these days? The typical feature is that first you get an egg, which hatches into a baby. Usually it's a boy or a girl. And you're tasked with immediately taking care of it, feeding it, playing with it, cleaning up its poop, taking care of the sickness. And then 
as it develops, you can take it out traveling. You can play games to earn items and you can dress up your Tamagotchi or, or give it toys or decorate its room. And then more features unlock once it becomes an adult, depending on the version. But what lots of people like to do is connect two different Tamagotchis together so they can reproduce and start their next generation. Yeah, they definitely seem oh, a lot more advanced since the 1990s. What would you say is maybe the biggest new feature that Tamagotchi has that a lot of people might not know about? I think the biggest feature would be one introduced on the Tamagotchi Uni, which mm. is the Wi-Fi connectivity. You set up Wi-Fi in your device and you connect to a virtual world called the Tamaverse, where you can interact with other people's Tamagotchi characters from around the world. And you can also buy exclusive items and take even take trips to different destinations. That's the newest release, the Tamagotchi Uni, which seems like the most advanced virtual pet yet. Let's go ahead and get into it. So what's so special about the Uni and what has the fan reception been like so far? The fan reception, first of all, has been incredible. Lots of people really love this device right out the box. But this one's really special because it's the first color screen Tamagotchi to have a simultaneous global release. Hmm. Previously, color screens were exclusive to Japan for a very long time. But then some of the devices started trickling in around late 2018. But this is the first time that a color screen Tamagotchi has been released in Japan, North America, Europe, everywhere, all at the same time. Typically, how long would it normally take for a Tamagotchi to release in Japan and then in the West? If it's coming to the West, usually it's between six months to a year. Oh, wow. So a worldwide release is actually quite a big deal. Yeah. Worldwide releases are very rare. So they really went all out to make this one special. They had big release parties in different parts of the world, including New York and Tokyo. It's been exciting. I need to know more about the Tamaverse, which seems to be an online space within the Uni. What are your thoughts on the introduction of the Tamaverse? I think it's a really great idea because when you connect your Tamagotchi to Wi-Fi, that means you can download special items. It means you can download updates to your Tamagotchi. So if for some reason they shipped out with a glitch or something, you just update it and have it fixed. I think it's a great idea that people from all around the world can connect their Tamagotchis without having to go out and find someone else playing with one. So can the Tamagotchi interact with each other in this virtual space? Yes. At the entrance of the Tamaverse, you could see other people's Tamagotchis, and they'll say hello in their native language. The Tamagotchi Uni has several different languages built into it. So hmm. whichever country you buy it in, you can open it up, choose the language you want, and go ahead and use it. To me, one of the initial appeals of Tamagotchi is that it's relatively simple to use. Uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Mario, has a very famous quote about how Super Mario 64 was a technological achievement, but people were more excited about the simple graphics and gameplay of the Tamagotchi in Japan. Is there a push in the fandom for these more complex devices like the Uni, or is the simplicity still a major core component of Tamagotchi? Oh, definitely simplicity is a major component. Uh, people do want more features, uh, more excitement, more more different ways of interacting with your Tamagotchi, but really everyone craves that simplicity too, of just being able to press a button and to care for your pet directly without having to worry about other things getting in the way of that. So, and I think they've retained that from all the way from 1996 until now, because the core gameplay hasn't changed much at all. What would you like to see in the future from Tamagotchi? Do you want them to go even more advanced, maybe have Bluetooth or 4G or whatever, or would you like them to go in maybe a different direction? That's a tough question, actually. I'm not sure what direction Tamagotchi can go in from here, because 
right now the Unity feels like the most advanced thing we've ever had. They've had touchscreens in the last generation, which was two years ago, and but then they moved back to physical buttons with the Uni. So maybe a more advanced virtual space for the Tamagotchi to connect to, or hmm. maybe more advanced complex animations. They could go a whole bunch of different ways. Do you think they'll make a social media inside Tamagotchi eventually? I think because these are being sold to children that it, they can't really do that. Hmm. But the Uni does have its own built-in social media feature. Oh, where you're t- yeah, it's very cute. What your Tamagotchi will do is it'll take pictures throughout the day of, of stuff that it likes or when it goes on walks or something, and then it can send it to your smartphone. Going back to the history of Tamagotchi a little bit, I want to know more about Mamechi. He is kind of the de facto mascot for Tamagotchi, and he's even appeared in the arcade Mario Kart game. How did Mamechi become the face of Tamagotchi? It's funny because Mamechi wasn't really supposed to be the face of Tamagotchi. It was hmm. supposed to be a Kuchipachi. Now, Kuchipachi is still a very beloved character, but Mamechi became the face of it. Originally, they didn't want to make the characters too cutesy because the character's designs were done by Kenji Watanabe, who also did Digimon. And they were worried that making the characters too cutesy would be, it would sort of dilute the uniqueness of the Tamagotchi branch because so many Tamagotchi designs are kind of out there. Some are very strange and unique. Whereas Mamechi is very simple and cute. He looks like a teddy bear with big eyes. People latched onto him the moment the first Tamagotchi was released, so he became the mascot. What are some of the more unusual Tamagotchi characters? I think one looks just like kind of like an old man. Uh, yeah, on the very first Tamagotchi, there was Oyajichi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he looks like a balding old man, and he, he drinks alcohol. Is he still around yeah. today, or has he been kind of phased out? Oh, no, no, he's he's still around. Everyone still loves him. He's he still shows up from time to time. Not in every device, but he still shows up. But there are all different ones. There's ones that look like toilets. There's one that look like devils and bats and all sorts of things. Would you prefer another character take the role of mascot, or is Mamechi doing a good job? I think Mamechi's doing a good job. Recently, there's been a lot of special licensed Tamagotchis. There are Evangelion-themed Tamagotchis, Demon Slayer Tamagotchis, even Jurassic World has a collaboration. When did this trend start, and do you have any favorite collaborations? Yes, that is the Tamagotchi Nano line. They're smaller than a regular Tamagotchi, but they have a lot of good features on them. They're sort of a good introduction device for people who maybe they are interested in Tamagotchi, but they haven't really used one. But there is a brand or particular show or movie that they like that happens to have a Tamagotchi, so they can try it out from there. The first one was in 2017 with Gudetama, but there was a Disney one before at a at the Tokyo Disney Easter. But Gudetama was the first one to leave Japan and actually be available in North America and Europe. And then they've done all different ones with Eevee and he said Demon Slayer and Evangelion, Hello Kitty. I think my favorite is probably going to be the R2D2 Tamagotchi. Ah, uh, yes. Is there a licensed IP that you would like to see Tamagotchi tackle? I would love to see Beastars Tamagotchi. Ooh, okay. Do you think that's likely, or is that a bit too out there? Well, I mean, they didn't even yell in Tamagotchi, so I don't think Beastars (laughs) would be too scary. But also, a lot of fans have been asking for maybe Animal Crossing or Sailor Moon. Mm. I think those would be great, too. Yeah, I'm surprised there hasn't been a Sailor Moon one yet, but I think that's probably an eventual one. You mentioned before, I was thinking about maybe Nintendo Tamagotchis, 
Of course, there is an, a special Eevee one. Can you tell me more about that one? Yes, the Eevee Tamagotchi, that came out in Japan in late January 2019. Came in two colors. It's sold out very quickly. Apparently, they were trying to get it to America, but they couldn't work out a deal with Takara Tomi. Mm. Something about the way toy licenses go between international waters. I'm not privy to it, but it's a shame. But I do have it. It's it's a very cute device. You take care of Eevee, and then after three days, he evolves depending on how how you care for it and how you play the games. Oh, okay. So does he have so, all the evolutions in there? All, all nine evolutions and then three special ones. Oh, what are the special ones? First one is Costume Eevee, where it's Eevee wearing a pop star costume. <laughs> one is Team Rocket Eevee, which is Eevee wearing a black hat with a red R on it. And then the third one is Ditto. Uh, it just looks oh. like an Eevee with Ditto's face. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because we haven't really seen those in the actual Pokemon games. So Tamagotchi secretly has some exclusive Eevee evolutions of sorts. Yeah, exactly. There are also a lot of traditional Tamagotchi video games going back all the way to the Game Boy. Have you played any of these Tamagotchi video games? And are there any that stand out? I've played a few. I've played the original Game Boy game. I've played the CD-ROM. I've played Tamagotchi Party On for the Wii. That one came to the West, correct? The Wii one? Yeah, the Wii one came to the West. And so did the Corner Shop games for the Nintendo DS. Hmm. Do they play similar to the Virtual Pet, or is it just a totally different gameplay style? The PC one plays identical to the classic one. The Game Boy one plays much the same, except there's a whole bunch of new features. Your Tamagotchi can enter competitions, and you have to train it for those competitions throughout its life. So that's pretty neat. But mostly the console games are they're games that take place in the Tamagotchi world, as it were. I want to touch a bit briefly on Digimon because Digimon is also from Bandai. So it is kind of the, maybe the brother of Tamagotchi. Has there been a lot of Digimon and Tamagotchi crossover over the years? There have been a little bit of crossover between the two, but never a direct thing. It'd be really cool for them to do that one day. I'd love to see it. Tamagotchi meeting its younger, angrier brother. I'm sure there have probably been a lot of imitators or maybe rivals to the Tamagotchi. Even Nintendo put out the Pocket Pikachu years ago. Why do you think Tamagotchi has endured so long compared to its competitors? I think it's the quality and the brand recognition. Mm. When you pick up a Tamagotchi, it is very simple and intuitive to use. A Tamagotchi is very simple and straightforward, very intuitive. You press the buttons to open the menu and to feed. And there's no extra complications. Even when a Tamagotchi has a lot of bells and whistles, all the main features are still very easily accessible. Hmm. Whereas I think a lot of the competitors try to really push the envelope or try to make things more complex and advanced in order to stand out from the Tamagotchi, but right. in the end sort of sacrifice that simplicity that makes Tamagotchi so memorable. I want to dive into your site a bit, the Tamagotchi Wiki. How did you get involved with the project? Oh, I was on early Tamagotchi forums, like way back in 2004, when the brand was relaunched and everyone was getting back into it. Hmm. And around 2007, there was a new online site called wikia.com, where Hmm. anyone could go on and they could produce a wiki for their favorite fandom. And at the time, I saw that wikia was getting very big very quickly. And I worried, these forums that I'm on all the time, what if one day they're no longer accessible? 
we got to have a place where all this information about Tamagotchi can still be available. So I pitched with the other members this idea. And then I went to wikia.com and I requested the Tamagotchi wiki to be made. And then I was promoted to the founder and admin of it. And it hmm. launched. You currently have 2,984 pages on the wiki. Do you have any guess about what page number 3,000 is going to be about? Page number 3,000. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I, I never even thought I would get to 2,000. I think maybe page number 3,000 is going to be about some obscure vintage character that we never heard of. Because one interesting thing about Tamagotchi is that because there's been so much, such a big language barrier and so, so many things did not reach America from Japan, we're always finding out new things about the vintage era of Tamagotchi. So maybe one day there'll be another character or an another bit of Tamagotchi lore to be found. Yeah, it's a great resource for Tamagotchi information. I was reading it yesterday, and one thing I learned that you kind of mentioned is that there has been kind of an ebb and flow in terms of the popularity of Tamagotchi. It was very popular in the 90s, but then it kind of had, I don't want to say a crash, but maybe its popularity dipped a bit. And then it was revived in the early 2000s. Tell me a bit more about the revival of Tamagotchi. What did they do to make it different from the 90s versions? That was the big relaunch, the Tamagotchi Connection, as it was known internationally, and as Tamagotchi Plus, as it was known in Japan. So what they did was, in order to really make it that they upgraded the device, that it had new features that were worth trying out, they made it bigger with a bigger screen, hmm. and they put an infrared port at the top so that you could connect the two devices together. That was the big push that they had marketed, that two devices can connect and they can become friends, exchange items, play games together, and then when they're older, get married and have babies. And they also had lots of really good quality of life features on it compared to the original. They had the bigger screen, but it also had more games. It had more complex animations and had more options for you to care for your Tamagotchi, so you had a better idea of how well you were doing and what your character was going to become. Okay, so my listeners have heard us talk about Tamagotchi for a while now, and now they all want to buy one. What's your recommendation for somebody wanting to dip their toes into the Tamagotchi waters? What would be a good first pet? Well, if you want to get the classic experience, they still produce the original device now. Mm. They've been reproducing them since 2018 with all different sorts of colors. I think for someone that gets the idea that they want to try an authentic Tamagotchi, that would be the first step that I would recommend. I think for someone that's more hesitant or maybe maybe they don't know if they'll really get into it, maybe they could try uh, Tamagotchi Nano because maybe that there's a brand that they associate strongly with and that Tamagotchi has a version for. And final question. I mentioned earlier, but Mamechi is in Mario Kart for the arcades. So if there is a Tamagotchi character in Mario Kart 9, which character would you like to see included? Do you mean other than Mamechi? Uh, you can pick Mamechi if you think he's the number one person to go into Mario Kart, but do you have another person you would like to see instead? If not Mamechi, then Kuchipachi. Mm. Awesome. Well, I'm so happy I got to talk Tamagotchi with you. So Tamagotchi Wiki, where can people find you? We can find us on the web at tamagotchi.fandom.com. You also find us on Twitter. Our handle is Tamagotchi Wiki. And I'd also like to give a shout out to tamatown.com which is a fan site created by fans. And they have a Discord server where you can join and hang out with other Tamagotchi collectors. Great. And the links to everything will be in the podcast description. So check it out. 
Tamagotchi Wiki, once again, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Let's take a brief ad break. Alex, hi, I'm Ray. How would you explain our show, No More Whoppers? Are you a nerd having trouble transitioning from your 20s to 30s to 40s and beyond? Age with us, not at us. I'm already gray. Are you tired of the man keeping you down? If you see something, say something. Do you enjoy the family computer? Capsule computing. We got them all. No More Whoppers. We outlived the queen. She said it couldn't be done. No, I'm fading. <laughs> Come back. I can't do this alone. Do you enjoy number munchers? And is numbers what you call p- Then listen to No More Whoppers. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Remember that game? I talked about it a whole lot this year on the podcast. But I haven't spoken about it in a while because, well, I've been playing it. But now, I've rolled credits and I've done pretty much everything I wanted to do. All shrines done. All light routes done. All side quests and side adventures done. All caves cleared. Most importantly, all wells discovered. I don't have every little single piece of armor, nor did I finish all the Addison signs or get the Korok seeds. I gotta leave at least a little something for when I get the hankering to return to Hyrule. But for now, I'm done. So here it is, my final thoughts on Tears of the Kingdom. I was very hyped for this game, perhaps to an unhealthy level. I did go in with some realistic expectations, though. I was hoping for a great game, but knew it wouldn't touch Breath of the Wild. But I was wrong. It absolutely exceeded Breath of the Wild in almost every way. Here's a loaded question for you. Is this the best game ever? That's the takeaway a lot of people have after playing Tears of the Kingdom. I've seen multiple people say, Yeah, this is the greatest game ever made. It's a very lofty statement, but after beating it, and honestly, even just a dozen hours into the game, I did ponder, is this actually the best game ever made? Breath of the Wild is certainly one of my favorite games, and maybe objectively, if I had to pick something as the, quote, greatest example of a video game, it would be Breath of the Wild. Tears of the Kingdom keeps everything excellent about the first game and expands upon it to an exponential degree. So, by default, yes, perhaps this is the greatest game ever made. Yet, if you have to ask, is this the best game ever, doesn't that kind of disqualify it? Shouldn't you be 100% confident? When credits roll, shouldn't you be ready to make such a claim without a doubt in your mind if it was truly the best there's ever been? With me, there is an inherent hesitation. I don't even think when credits were rolling for Breath of the Wild, I was thinking it was the best game ever. It needs to meld into the folds of my brain before I can say something so bold. I will say this, though. Tears of the Kingdom is perhaps one of the greatest adventures in all of fiction. Yes, books, movies, games, songs, I guess. When you're looking at adventure as a genre, Tears of the Kingdom stands as one of its masterpieces. Its scope is practically unparalleled. Maybe there are technically bigger games out there. Baldur's Gate 3 just dropped, and maybe that game is longer than Tears of the Kingdom, with a lot more dialogue and side quests. But Zelda excels because everything is so real and tactile. When you launch up into the sky, nothing is fake. Everything you see on your descent is a place you can plant your feet. Tears completely unshackles the player so they can both engage with the game's masterful created content, but also build upon their own stories and moments. Many of my favorite memories about the game are organically created adventures I stumbled into or set out to do. Every time I booted up the game and played it for 30 minutes or so, I felt like I always had a contained little 30-minute adventure. 
Maybe I discovered a cave or completed a side quest. Every gameplay session is its own little story. Not many games can satisfy as quickly as Tears of the Kingdom. The game succeeds on both a micro and macro scale. We have this 100 plus hour adventure, but it's filled with a bunch of smaller adventures we can see to the end in just a few minutes. I think the balance between these mini adventures that are often player generated and the larger quest is why the game maintains such a high quality even after 150 hours. The game felt truly endless. Sadly, it's not. There is a finite finish to the game in terms of story and content, but there are enough tools in the game that tempt players back to Hyrule even after you've explored every inch. The Zonai devices really do open up that possibility of infinite gameplay. Players likely don't make anything super complicated, but Nintendo is smart enough not to rely on the building's complex possibilities and instead highlighted its intuitiveness and ease. You're likely only slapping together creations that are made of two or three parts when it comes to story puzzles. There's just the right amount of pushing the player's critical thinking skills without forcing them to build a Gundam. Ultra Hand is such a risk since the sheer thought of having to construct machines and objects turns a lot of people off, especially those who don't consider themselves creative. But it's so easy to use once you get used to it. I think the game in general has a lot of elements you need to get used to, such as the controls, but once they click, you'll be doing some wild things in just a few button presses. Tears of the Kingdom answers the question, what if you had 10 years to make a game? Breath of the Wild started development after Skyward Sword, so around 2012 or so. The foundation of Breath of the Wild goes back to here, and then it became the foundation for Tears of the Kingdom. And when you're playing Tears, it absolutely feels like a game that took a lifetime to make. It's such an interesting design philosophy. They could have started from scratch for the sake of everything being new, but they realized hey, we perfected some things, so why not build upon perfection? It's an incredible risk because the player could get burned out or the new content might not live up to expectations. But Nintendo was able to prove without a shadow of a doubt that reusing Hyrule can be just as exciting as creating a new world. But that may always be a mark against the game. So much is unfamiliar, but there are a lot of things we already know. Playing Breath of the Wild, absolutely everything was new. Small things like the chest opening animation, or the fact that the Lazalfos were based on chameleons, or encountering a lino for the first time, you can't pull that off again. Yes, there are some new things to ooh and ah over, but literally every single aspect of Breath of the Wild was completely new for the Zelda franchise, while that's obviously not the case for Tears of the Kingdom. It's interesting to see Nintendo sacrifice a bit of newness so they can surprise players in different ways. And for Breath of the Wild hardcores, there's enough twists on common conventions to keep things exciting. Hateno Village, a place I spent hours in during the first game, feels like a completely new town despite the layout being similar. But let's look at the two brand new areas, the sky and the depths. They heavily marketed the sky, but comparatively, you don't spend a whole lot of time up there. I do love those gameplay segments. They were among my favorites in the entire game. Navigating each archipelago that was just really a big environmental puzzle never got old. There were a lot of fun challenges and strange objects to encounter, like those huge balls or platforms that house bosses. Early on, you really need to think carefully and plan how to maneuver around them. Every little inch you can get from a lift or a flying machine counts. There was always the tension that you could just fall off at any moment. And carrying those green crystals, more than a few times I sent them hurling down to the ground. But there were some fun ones where you actually do need to bring the crystal from the sky to the surface. I've been hearing that a lot of people are disappointed with the sky, but I thought it was pretty well implemented and it was always fun to go up there. You do get to a point where you think, 
okay, I guess I'm done with the sky once you do all the shrines and whatnot. But it does look beautiful. It has great music. So I find myself just chilling up there sometimes. I do think the lore behind the islands is a bit underwhelming, though. So many people had theories that maybe it's the Sacred Realm or whatever before launch. But when you hear the reason, it's just like, oh, okay. And the depths. Something that was almost completely hidden from us before launch. What a wild addition to the game. A completely flipped map shrouded in darkness. It's incredibly intimidating at first, but once you understand that you can just beeline for the light routes and build a flying motorcycle, it becomes a lot more interesting to explore. I love just flying around, lighting up the darkness, then raiding abandoned depots to get some new items or zonite. The game is smart in how it encourages players to explore all three areas. The sky has these zonite devices for you to use on the surface and the depths, along with plants that help you survive the gloom. The surface has all the quests and opportunities to use the zonite devices, while also giving you light seeds to brighten up the depths, and the depths give you zonite, which helps you upgrade your battery to make exploring the sky and ground easier. Once that rhythm clicks, the game becomes a lot more manageable. They also hide a ton of cool things to find in the depths, most of it lore-shattering, but it's very clear that the devs didn't care and did just whatever they thought was cool. But the surface is the real meat of the game, and that's where you'll be spending most of your time. Greatest overworld in a video game ever? I'd say so. The caves alone elevate Breath of the Wild's brilliantly designed world to a completely new level. There are literally over a hundred of them, and none feel like they're copy and pasted. Every single one has some sort of gimmick, either a fun enemy encounter or a creative puzzle. I loved how different they were by region. Farron had a lot of caves that were just Zonai equipment depots, which makes sense because that's where the Zonai were prominent. Gerudo's caves are filled with ancient ruins. Some of the Zora caves have Hyrulean architecture, which is a callback to the Hylians building the Great Dam in Zora Lake. And the music for the cave shrine is some of the best in the game. Oh, I guess we can smoothly transition to shrines now. In both this game and in Breath of the Wild, shrines were my favorite part. Some say these are way better than the first games, but those were great too, and I'd say they're pretty even. Many are heavy on Ultra Hand, but there are plenty of great ones that focus on Recall or Ascend, or even Fuse. Combat Shrines are significantly better because they are now combat puzzles, instead of just fighting the same enemy over and over again. I'm trying to think about which design I like more. The futuristic Jomon architecture of the first game looked great, but I do love the Zen-inspired look of the new shrines. How many games borrow heavily from Zen Gardens, for example? I can see myself turning on the shrine music for tears just to relax, though. I do think the orange hill is a bit more visually striking from a distance compared to the green spiral, and I like how there are variations of the Sheikah monks compared to these samey statues in the Tears shrines. But those are nitpicks, and aside from that, the new shrines lived up to my expectations, and I was sad when I found them all. One thing I think Tears absolutely beats Breath of the Wild in is quest design. Do you remember the side quests from the first game? There were a lot of fine tin mushrooms types of filler quests. Here, you've got elaborate side adventures and shorter side quests, but all of them feel like meaty content that's absolutely worth doing. I love how so many quests are tied to photography. Yeah, Nintendo made this gigantic world, so I want to take some photos. The quests are often unpredictable in their outcome and what you need to do. I never thought I'd build a monster truck to bring a band to a ferry, but here I am. There are several based around you infiltrating the Iga, another where you need to bring these giant po-eyes from the surface to the depths. The variety in things you do and how they push the gameplay systems is incredible. I would say my favorite questline is easily the election quest in Hateno. You bribe villagers, spy on people, explore this vast, interconnected cave system under the town. Plus, it has the perfect conclusion that heavily ties in with the main theme of the game. 
The towns in particular are so distinct, even though I've been to them before. Kakariko is having an archaeology party. The others are overridden with disasters. They all feel so different from how they were in the previous game. But back to the quest a little bit, I've seen some criticism that you don't really get a lot of great rewards. But to me, I think the reward is doing the quest. For example, in Super Mario Odyssey, you're not really getting a moon to have the moon because it doesn't really do anything. You're getting the moons to engage with the gameplay systems and see the curated content from Nintendo. But I do think the rewards overall are still pretty useful. Everything you pick up has some use, either upgrading your armor or just sticking it to a sword. I also think the dungeons are much better here than in Breath of the Wild. I was amazed at how seamlessly they are integrated into the world. The fact that I started the Rito quest line and then it eventually led me to a dungeon without any sort of loading or warping my character to a new area, this blew my mind. Rito was my first dungeon and I do think it is the best one, but the others were all pretty stellar. I consider the whole trek to the dungeon and the quest line as part of the dungeon, not just when you walk through the front door. If you look at a dungeon as just one building, they can be pretty short and underwhelming, but as part of a major quest, I felt like they were all excellent in their own ways. Great boss fights too, way better than the Ganon Blights. They have kind of backed themselves into a corner though. Dungeons by nature are pretty rigid with specific lock and key puzzle designs. But that flies in the face of what these new Zelda games are all about. So they have to let players do whatever, but they still need to give them a bit of direction. This leads to players breaking the game a bit, such as not really using the minecarts in the Goron dungeon. But I think the devs are fine with it. They give players the tools and it's up to the players to decide how they want to interact with the game systems. I know some people want the real deal traditional dungeons back, but looking at the game as a whole, it has so many dungeon-esque puzzles in both Shrines and the Overworld that I never felt like I was being shortchanged by these new dungeon designs. Let's talk about the story a bit. No real spoilers, so don't worry if you haven't rolled credits yet. I would love to see another developer interview talking solely about the inspiration for the story. Not only the themes, but also very specific plot elements. I want to shake them and ask, why? Why? I think it needs to gestate a bit in my brain, but I will say Breath of the Wild had a stronger story. It was more cohesive in terms of plot, symbolism, and also a bit meta, which might not have been what the developers intended, but it's hard to ignore. A major theme of that game was legacy, how those characters are supposed to fill their predestined roles despite their failures. I think the developers also kind of felt this pressure the characters did, where they had to meet the expectations set by the series while still pushing it forward in a completely new direction. I really connected with the idea of Hyrule being segmented and isolated, with Link slowly bringing everyone together. Plus, Calamity Ganon is a pretty brilliant idea for a villain. Generations of Ganon's greed and lust for power ended with him being a completely mindless entity, a manifestation of chaos and carnage. It was a fitting conclusion for a villain. In Tears, we do get some extensions of the themes from the first game. Now Hyrule has been brought together, you finally see the different races interacting with each other. The world is alive again. The devs said a major theme of the game was hands, which sounds silly out of context, but it makes perfect sense in the game. The theme of Tears focuses on collaboration over conflict. This is really highlighted in the election quest. Everyone is working hand in hand. They're united, which they start contrast to the loneliness of Breath of the Wild. The cyclical nature of the story also ties in with the focus on cooperation of peoples across time and space. If we're looking at the plot, though, there's definitely a lot of head scratchers. For one, I don't feel like they had a good reason to bring back Ganondorf. Like I said before, his fate as Calamity Ganon is really a perfect conclusion. But oh, his human form is back. Be scared. Considering he has no connection to the other incarnations of the characters, he's a bit underwhelming as an antagonist. Yes, I know he was never super deep except for maybe Wind Waker, 
But if you're going to bring him back after a 15-year absence, you need something more than just a cool design. Also, we finally see real-life Azonai, one of the greatest mysteries of the original game. Yet we don't learn a whole lot about them, and there are so many questions surrounding them that we're still clueless about. The game does a lot of wild timeline shenanigans in terms of contradicting things. You really could consider the Switch games as its own universe, where it goes Skyward Sword HD, then Breath of the Wild, then Tears. So while the game is fairly interesting thematically, the plot is a bit threadbare. But I can't lie, there are some incredibly emotional moments. The Master Sword, the final boss, they completely nailed the moments that needed to resonate with players. And man, that last gameplay sequence, is that not the greatest ending to a game? Yeah, I know these are some pretty scattered shot impressions, but I feel like no matter how long I talk about the game, I'm underselling it. I rolled credits after 160 hours, easily the longest time I've played a game before hitting the final boss. How can you even begin to describe the merits of a 160-hour experience that is an unbelievable achievement that won't be topped in years, if ever? Even if I go on for five more hours, I don't feel like I would be doing the game justice. While I'm still on the fence about declaring it the best game ever, I would have bet an eye at anyone who did call it that. And come game of the year time, maybe I will hop off that fence. But regardless, hey, you should play Tears of the Kingdom. If you've never touched Breath of the Wild, it would probably make your head explode, but in a good way. If you didn't like Breath of the Wild, I think this game resolves most of the issues from that first title. And if you are a Breath of the Wild diehard, this game went above and beyond in giving us what we wanted. I'll be talking about Tears of the Kingdom more during the 2023 Game of the Year episode, so look forward to that. But in the meantime, I think it's time to close the book on Zelda for a bit and see what else is out there. That's it for games, now for the news. The news. There was a Pokemon Presents a few days ago. Things were presented. I suppose the biggest thing is the date for the first wave of DLC was announced, the Teal Mask is coming September 13th. It takes place in Kitakami, a very Japanese-inspired location, and the Pokemon seem heavily based on the fable of Momotaro. There's even a brief shot of Onigashima, the demon island present in the story. I'm a sucker for anything Japanese-inspired, so this DLC looks fairly interesting. The DLC for Sword and Shield was better than expected, so I'm hoping that's the case here. We also got some new Pokemon, Diplin, which is a regional evolution of Applin, and Arcaludon, a non-regional evolution of Duraludon. Plus, we got a past Paradox version of Raikou that looks like a giraffe and a robot Cobalion. I know none of this makes sense unless you are a Pokemon diehard, but trust me, these things exist. We also saw a bit of Detective Pikachu Returns and a bunch of other stuff about the anime and whatnot, but the only real big piece of game news is that Pokemon TCG and Pokemon Stadium 2 are now on Nintendo Switch Online. Both are absolutely worth playing, or at least the mini-games in Pokemon Stadium 2. That's actually called Pokemon Gold and Silver in Japan, because the US Pokemon Stadium is Japan's Pokemon Stadium 2. Japan's Pokemon Stadium 1 never came out to the West, and is largely regarded to be pretty bad. It's one of the rare Nintendo games that will never be re-released. I had my fun with Scarlet and Violet, and I will get the DLC because I am that deep in the sauce, but this presents was pretty bland. I've been so up and down with Pokemon in the Switch generation, some truly great games, but also some bewildering decisions in the main titles. Game Freak is making bank though, so Pokemon will continue until the heat death of the universe. Nintendo published their quarterly numbers, Switch is nearing 130 million and moved nearly 4 million units this past quarter. According to Bloomberg, Nintendo achieved their highest operating profit for a Q1 quarter ever, 
even topping the past record set in 2020. Not many consoles are still breaking sales records in their seventh year of life, but Switch is truly in its own league. Tears of the Kingdom has also sold 18.5 million copies in about six weeks, so it will sprint past 20 million soon. Breath of the Wild is at 30 million, so Tears topping that isn't a guarantee considering the legs of Breath of the Wild, but it will at least get pretty close. Mario Kart 8 also sold 1.6 million this past quarter, because why not? I'm very curious about how Super Mario Bros. Wonder will do this holiday. Obviously, it will be a huge hit, but is it going to cross 15 million before the year is over, for example? If the marketing push is big enough and the game is good, it's possible. But seeing these absurd Switch numbers is always fun. Switch 2 is around the corner, but it's going to be hard to top the megaton sales figures the Switch has been putting up. Never count Nintendo out, though. Maybe the Switch 2 era will be even bigger somehow, some way. That's all for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. Leave a five-star review as well. It really helps with visibility. The podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find the links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be on August 27th. See you next time. Matane! Matane!